This is Inside Yale Law School, the podcast series designed to give you a peek inside to the scholars, the thinkers, the teachers, and the game changers of Yale Law School. I'm Heather Gerken, the Dean, here to open a little window into the world of this remarkable place. I think that there is real value in looking at uh, the way that the Constitution assumes a particular form in institutional settings. Um, and so that's true for the public school. Um, and I've also written about the prison, where the Constitution again assumes a particular form. And so, you know, we often think, well, you know, does the Constitution protect certain conduct or not protect that conduct? And the answer to that question question is often predicated on where uh, the conduct occurs. I am so happy to have with me today Justin Driver, the Robert R. Slaughter Professor of Law. Justin, thank you so much for being here. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks. If, you, if it's all right with you, I'd like to go back to where this all started for you. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about why did you end up doing education law? Yeah, so I grew up in Washington, D.C. I grew up in southeast D.C., east of the Anacostia River, a predominantly black neighborhood. My parents uh, never had me go to our neighborhood school uh, in order to they believed, uh, had me realize my full potential. And so starting in the fifth grade, I started traveling to way upper northwest Washington that required me to get on a bus and two different subway lines and have a pretty long walk. And I started thinking, why in the world am I waking up at the crack of dawn in order to go to the fifth grade? And what advantages and opportunities am I gaining as a result of this long journey? And importantly, uh, what opportunities and advantages are my friends from my neighborhood missing out on uh, as a result of going to uh, not great uh, schools? And so that drove home for me the idea that um, education makes an enormous difference, and the way that law structures education is an understudied uh, phenomenon in our schools. Neither one of my parents graduated from college, but they were incredibly invested in our education. I can still remember uh, being in the sixth grade and my father uh, departing uh, very late, unusually late one night, uh, in order to drive across town and to sleep in his car outside of the best junior, public junior high school in Washington, D.C. And he did this in order to make sure that he could be the first in line. Uh, in order to secure permission for students to attend the school that didn't grow up in the district. And uh, that is emblematic of uh, my parents' attitude toward education. And I'm so grateful to them. I'm quite confident uh, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation today, uh, but for their sort of superhuman efforts. And I view that as an inspiring story, but also a depressing story. Uh, it shouldn't be uh, that parents are required to jump through these incredible hoops in order to make sure that their kids can thrive. So let's actually, because it's a perfect lead into your book, uh, The Schoolhouse Gate, um, which is is an incredibly interesting book. First of all, because you start talking about the personal, which is not always the move of a scholar, but I think it made that book even more powerful. But what it is, is if I can summarize, is an effort to bring together all the sort of education decisions in one place. 
And I will say that typically in con law, you get these in a scattered way and you don't see the deep connections among them. And, and as a scholar of constitutional law, reading them together made me think about that line of cases completely differently. So I wonder if you could just talk about how did that, how did the idea for it originate? The subject matter was in your life, but how did you think about how to write that book? Yeah. Um, you know, I was interested in that book in examining the intersection of two important institutions in American society, the public school on the one hand and the Supreme Court on the other. And the core claim of the book is that it's difficult, if not impossible, to understand the one institution without thinking about the other. That is to say that the Supreme Court really does uh, sort of regulate public schools in a significant way. And though we don't think about public schools as being legal institutions. Law is all around them, and they shape these incredibly significant institutions in American life. And then I was also interested in uh, thinking about the Supreme Court's role in American life and intervening in debates about uh, what the court can actually do in its capacity. Many of our colleagues in constitutional law have a very sort of jaundiced conception of what the court can do. And I was interested in uh, showing how these education decisions uh, demonstrate the court's counter-majoritarian capabilities, its ability to stand up against uh, dominant views in American society. And the education cases really do offer an unusually good window for examining that phenomenon. You know, it's, what I loved about that book was that it was an act of scholarly daring uh, because you were moving against the tide. So the kind of blasé statement about Brown and all of those and the court's role was really to say the court doesn't really matter. And and you came back with, with, with what seemed like at, at first glance an old-fashioned answer, but a quite sophisticated one about the role of, of the courts. Uh, although I will say now in the wake of Dobbs, uh, I'm not sure that anyone needs the, to know the lesson that the court can affect people people's lives pretty deeply. But I really, that's one of the things I love the most about that book was that it it ran against the tide and built out a case for a set of arguments that I think scholars had forgotten or overlooked. Yeah. I do think that there is real value in looking at uh, the way that the Constitution assumes a particular form in institutional settings. Um, and so that's true for the public school. Um, and I've also written about the prison, where the Constitution again assumes a particular form. And so, you know, we often think, well, you know, does the Constitution protect certain conduct or not protect that conduct? And the answer to that question is often predicated on where uh, the conduct occurs. And so it's true. When I told people I was going to write a book about education law, uh, there were some people who were saying, why? You know, that's just not an especially uh, vigorous or invigorated area of the law. That's not a good use of your time. You should be, you know, doing something else. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I dedicated the time to investigate uh, this issue because it does uh, demonstrate lessons that I think have uh, been for, forgotten. I'm not someone who believes that the court uh, can do whatever it wishes, but I think that there's been an overcorrection uh, where people suggest that the court is uh, a virtually powerless institution in American society, and for good or for ill, um, it seems to me that uh, the court possesses a fair amount of power. 
the lawyers lawyer in me also love the book because what you realize is that there's a sort of assumption I think sometimes in con law that everything applies across the board and that you can sort of move from what, what lawyers or and political theorists would call domain to domain and expect the doctrine to play out. I'm in a place election law where that is flatly untrue. But to see it in the school's context was really powerful to see how differently the doctrine plays out when the court is talking about schools. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, the Supreme Court has articulated a whole host of constitutional doctrine that applies, in effect, only within the public school. Um, and so student free speech rights, for example, um, have uh, their own diminished uh, protections. Uh, the Supreme Court of the United States famously said in Tinker versus Des Moines, it can hardly be argued that students shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. Uh, that gives me the title for my book, The Schoolhouse Gate. Uh, but it is true that the students receive uh, sort of what I call junior varsity constitutional rights in the, in the school setting. And what's true of the freedom of speech is also true about the Fourth Amendment, uh, dealing with searches and seizures. Students received uh, reduced protections, but they do receive protections. And the same is true with respect to due process, thinking about uh, suspensions. And so it is important to be attuned uh, to the uh, particular uh, form that constitutional rights assume in varied constitutional settings. So what's really interesting about that quote is that the court says that, and yet the court also understands what we all know, which is students learn to be citizens uh, inside of school. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about your vision for civic education. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I do here at Yale Law School is uh, I am the mentor to a program that takes Yale Law students and has them teach civic education in New Haven Public Schools. Um, it's a really uh, wonderful program, and um, the way that they focus on communicating constitutional rights uh, to students is to talk about uh, the uh, students' constitutional rights. Um, I know very well from my own youth that if we were to talk about the separation of powers and sort of checks and balances and executive power, that would have felt quite foreign and abstract and removed. Um, but if you had talked to me about the rights that students have with respect to the freedom of speech, I would have found that fascinating. And so students um, uh, can use this material as a gateway to thinking about these larger uh, sort of constitutional questions. Um, we have a, this program brings uh, students from New Haven schools to participate in uh, sort of mock uh, uh, you know, uh, oral argument about students' constitutional rights. And that sort of hands-on uh, training is really remarkable. One of the uh, happiest days that I've had as a professor at Yale Law School was when I went to uh, Hill House, a uh, school here in New Haven, and saw two Yale Law students leading a class of about 25 uh, public school students. And the students were just really enthusiastic about constitutional rights. And after class uh, ended, one of the students said, when I grow up, I want to be a judge, you know, oh. and that was um, a really, really special day. That's awesome. Well, I want to talk a little bit about another area where you're taking a domain-centered approach, and it's it's your new piece in Harvard Law Review, The Incoherence of Prison Law, which you wrote with Emma Kaufman, who's one of ours. And uh, it, I mean, it strikes me as sort of a, if you were a matchmaker, you would pair the two of you to write that piece, because it brings in your both uh, your backgrounds and distinctive scholarly sensibilities. But the thing I love 
just the most about it is this you know, this arresting frame. So you you start out by talking about how much time we spend in law and policy thinking about prisons. And so you write, we ask who goes to prison. We ask why prisons exist. We ask whether we could have a world without them. And yet we completely neglect the law that shapes them. And and I, that is just a flat, flatly true. And it's also just amazing to see you sort of put meat on that the bones and in particular foreground the stories of prisoners themselves, let them have a voice in these conversations. So I wonder if you could just kind of walk us through the piece. Yeah, sure. Um, I, let me tell you about the origins of the piece first. Uh, you know, Emma and I taught a seminar in a uh, prison called the Westville Correctional facility, and we would go there for three hours uh, once a week and talk about what the Constitution means with people who are incarcerated. Uh, and um, those students in that class uh, really did uh, shape how Emma and I uh, think about uh, the Constitution's meaning. Uh, some people who are outside would say, Oh, these prisons are lawless institutions, and why would you be paying attention to uh, constitutional law? And the students enrolled in that that course really did drive home to us uh, that law does shape their lives uh, in in significant ways within the prison. And so uh, we, in that piece, the incoherence, were emphasizing uh, the way that uh, judges too often toggle back and forth between uh, particular views of the prison, often uh, to the detriment of uh, you know protecting uh, prisoners' constitutional rights. For example, uh, we talk about the notion of privacy in prison. And uh, there's a Fourth Amendment case where the court takes a view that people who are incarcerated have no privacy rights whatsoever, that people who are incarcerated uh, don't have any privacy rights in their cells. Um, And then uh, there's another case where reporters want to access uh, prison, and uh, all of a sudden, the privacy rights of prisoners are really sort of amplified and saying, these are not people in a zoo, even though, of course, the people who were trying to gain access to the prison, the reporters were trying to uh, uh, sort of uncover the horrific conditions that exist in prison. And so that's just one example where uh, the court uh, sort of toggles back and forth Uh, between notions of privacy to the detriment of prison. So we do, in this piece, try to take a panoramic look at prisoners' constitutional rights and uh, demonstrate how uh, the doctrine really doesn't hang together in a coherent way. What I loved about this was that I know it was in part built out in conversation with with prisoners and your students and reading biographies and bringing in the voices of people who really generally aren't in legal conversations except as kind of the named plaintiff who's almost a cipher in the piece. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you brought those voices in. Yeah, absolutely. I teach a, a seminar here called On the Inside, Narratives from Prison. And uh, the focus on that seminar really is trying to hear from people who are impacted by the law in a direct way, unmediated, exactly as you say. Uh, when you read a case involving uh, prisoners' rights, you hear from judges, you hear from wardens, you hear from 
from uh, correctional officers, but seldom do you hear from uh, the people themselves. And so we are trying to uh, highlight those voices and talk about their uh, views of law. So we, re- we read uh, Wilbert Rideau's uh, In the Place of Justice, who was in Angola down in Louisiana. And uh, when you hear from people who are incarcerated, they sometimes will say things that are quite surprising, at least to those who are on the outside, in the sense that Rideau uh, really notes the important role that law has played in uh, his estimation driving down violence in prison. For a long time, judges were of the view that we should have what's, called, what's been called a hands-off approach to prisons, right? That uh, we are judges, they would say. We are not wardens or correctional officers, and so we should just completely uh, ignore this area. And finally, in the 1960s, courts started getting involved, and Rideau suggests that that played an important role. And so it seems to me that it would be uh, the height of arrogance to ignore uh, the views of the people who are most directly impacted uh, by legal regimes. Well, it's really really wonderful to have this piece of the puzzle being built out here because I, I, I think that sometimes you know when I when I talk to zero L's you know people who are applying to the law school and they want to do criminal justice work I I, I want to not be too dean like but also to say that this is the most amazing place you can imagine for doing criminal justice work because you're in a cohort of people who are looking in a sort of 360 degree way about all of these cases so I imagine just having a set of interlocutors that you do also helps push forward projects like these absolutely um, you know having colleagues to push you on your ideas uh, is incredibly important and uh, sometimes that means at an incredibly abstract level and that's there's real value in that but people who know, about the domain that you're in um, can really advance the conversation in a significant way as well. And there's a wonderful uh, group of people who are interested uh, in these topics here. This really is a, an unrivaled place to study uh, criminal law in its many forms. I want to talk about another one of your big pieces. And, and what I love about both your piece with Emma um, and this piece is that they're written with someone who's quite junior to you. Uh, and, and that is just emblematic of who you are. Justin, I want to talk about mentoring in a bit, but I know how much mentoring you do um, of young scholars. So this one was written with a current student. Um, and so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit. This is this is a humdinger. I mean, this has got to be one of the biggest pieces that you'll maybe you'll write in your career. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, your piece on sort of rethinking Brown and, and communism. Yeah, so I uh, wrote a paper with a current student here at Yale Law School named Greg Breiker, a really wonderful student and collaborator. Uh, And uh, the paper is called Brown and Red, uh, Defending Jim Crow in Cold War America. And the dominant view is that uh, the uh, Supreme Court's decision in Brown uh, was in some significant way uh, driven by or giving voice to uh, an anti-communist lens. Um, that is to say that uh, the civil rights movement uh, you know, uh, was really uh, sort of anti-communist in nature. And uh, we noticed from reading the writings of segregationists uh, 
that they often styled themselves as being anti-communists. Um, and so, uh, you know, in fact, they said that, uh, you know, getting rid of segregation um, would be to capitulate to Moscow. Um, and so this was a core element of segregationist thought. And um, we thought that it would be valuable to, you know, recover the way that segregationists uh, styled themselves in an effort to uh, control the meaning of the Cold War. After reading this this article, I'm never going to teach Brown the way I did, because it, it was not just a scholarly consensus, it was almost thought to be scholarly fact, that Brown was in part a response to the pressures of the Cold War. And you've even made me want to sort of teach footnote 11 differently. Um, so footnote, I realize that's a little in the weeds, but if you could talk a little bit about the famed footnote 11 and, and the story that you now tell about it. The famed footnote 11, maybe even the infamous footnote 11, right? Footnote 11 is where Chief Justice Warren Warren uh, cites the work of many social scientists, including uh, Gunnar Myrdal um, and Kenneth Clark and the Dahl studies. Um, and uh, many people know this as the sort of most uh, infamous a footnote in, in constitutional law, maybe the most inflammatory words in fine print, one scholar has said. Um, and uh, it is a controversial footnote, but it seems to me that people fail to comprehend exactly why it was so controversial, which is not only because it involved the work of social science, but also because as segregationists at the time emphasized uh, and argued uh, that it was uh, the work of, they said, socialism and people who were drawn to communism. And so Gunnar Myrdal, this person they sort of tried to tarnish with a socialist brush, said that, you know, this is the uh, strong indication that Moscow was in the background here and that is uh, really driving the Supreme Court's decision making. And so if you want to have sort of a full understanding of what made footnote 11 so controversial, you need to examine it with uh, the anti-communist lens. The reason, one of the reasons I love this piece is because it's so uh, reflective of the way I think you work as a scholar. It's such a deep scholarly move to engage with these materials and to take them seriously. And in, in, in a lot of ways, this, this piece reminded me of your piece on the Southern Manifesto, which is one of my favorite pieces of yours. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about that, because again, that was where there was a scholarly consensus and you blew it up. No, I was writing a piece for a popular publication and I wanted to cite uh, a, uh, a piece that was making a nakedly overt racist argument in, you know, just the most brazen terms possible. And Justin, why don't you just start by telling us what the Southern Manifesto is for people who don't know? Yeah, the, so the Southern Manifesto is a document that came out in March of 1956, about two years after Brown versus Board of Education. And uh, just about all of the senators and congressmen from the former 11 states issued uh, this statement uh, that was about a thousand words long saying that Brown was wrongly decided. It was reprinted in newspapers all around the country um, and was understood to be a major statement of segregationist thought. 
And so I went to the Southern Manifesto and um, I was looking for this overt racist language that I just knew to be there. And as it turns out, it did not say what I knew it said. And that is um, a sign that you might be on to an interesting project because the Southern Manifesto had this certain mystique, uh, an ugly mystique uh, uh, around it as being nakedly racist. And it is a document, make no mistake, uh, that is animated by racism. But uh, the segregationists uh, were sophisticated enough to be able to speak in multiple registers to multiple audiences. And the more that I dug into the piece, it was clear to me that they had stripped away some of uh, the more uh, overt arguments and uh, made a highly legalistic argument. Indeed, um, you know, they use all six modalities of constitutional interpretation uh, when they are saying that Brown was incorrectly decided. Um, And it seemed clear to me that, in fact, the real audience for the Southern Manifesto uh, was not uh, sort of trying to whip up segregationist sentiment in the South, but instead to tamp down integrationist sentiment in the North. You know, one of the things that is distinctive about both your Southern Manifesto project and then the Jim Crow, uh, Brown and and Red uh, project is that in each instance, you're taking a set of materials that deny your own humanity and engaging with them in a way that not many do. I wonder, just as a scholar, but also as a human being, how do you think about that? Yeah, I want to be very clear. I do not admire the architects of the Southern Manifesto or the anti-communism at the root of Brown and Red. Um, uh, Nevertheless, it is significant that these folks uh, were uh, incredibly astute uh, 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 lawyers. Um, you know, Senator Sam Irvin of North Carolina was a graduate of Harvard Law School, a justice on the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, we make a mistake when we ignore that work or think of it as being the product of these unsophisticated bumpkins who are jumping up and down and screaming never. And it's especially important, I think, to engage with this thought uh, because it's not merely some sort of antiquarian interest. Instead, if you pay attention to these arguments from the 1950s and 1960s, uh, you can hear echoes of these arguments uh, around us today. Indeed, uh, one of the cases that was decided when I was a law clerk at the Supreme Court, the parents involved case about Brown versus uh, uh, the Board of Education, and in fact, what it means in the modern day, um, there's a plurality opinion that was written by Chief Justice Roberts uh, that really did echo strongly some of the arguments that Senator Sam Irvin made in the 1960s as he sought to offer a very constrained meaning of uh, what Brown meant. And so it seems to me that it is uh, essential uh, to engage with these, um, you know, uh, odious arguments, uh, but uh, they are nevertheless, uh, you know, worthy of paying attention to. I find it very moving to see how your 
life as a human being and a scholar and a lawyer all connect uh, in in this work. And I wonder if I might move a little bit more to your life as a human being. I, you are a, one of the most wonderful mentors we have at Yale Law School. And I just I don't know if you remember when you sat down on the couch the first time we were talking about the possibility of you coming. You said to me, "I want to come to Yale Law School because I want to mentor the students here." And and just seeing you here in the mix, I see more of our students of color and first-geners moving on to clerkships and to thinking about being an academic. It's just been wonderful. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about, um, for students who, who look at scholars and see these incredible articles and think, oh, you just add water, you know, that, that these, these ideas just spring from your head like Athena uh, did from the head of Zeus in perfect form. Uh, can you talk a little just about the process of writing? <laughs> Is, that's too hard a question. We can... <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Um, one of the things that I try to tell the many folks here who are interested in being a law professor is um, to not be in too big a rush to write or certainly to publish. Um, and I tell a story about my own law school days um, that, uh, you know, ideas can get better if you sort of allow them to marinate over time. When I was a student in law school, um, you know, I was thinking about writing a paper uh, uh, out of out of my personal life, in some respects, it's a classic of contract law. So this is a this is a case that is a is a, cla- a classic of contract law. Um, it's called the Williams versus Walker Thomas case, which deals with the doctrine of unconscionability. You know, when is a contract so the term so sort of uneven and uh, disparate as to be unenforceable? Um, it's uh, Williams versus Walker Thomas grew out of Washington D.C., my hometown, and um, it involved a, a woman who did not have much in the way of education, uh, was on public assistance, had uh, many children. And she entered into a contract with this uh, store, and the terms were very uneven. Um, I remember thinking um, that I knew this town, this part of town in Washington, D.C., and I remember thinking that this was a black woman. And the court, uh, an opinion by Judge J. Skelly Wright, um, didn't note that this was a, a black person. And I was thinking, well, should that matter in the analysis? You know, what difference would it really make if this person were uh, white or black and and what work would that do? And so for a while there, I was thinking about doing a big inquiry into Williams versus Walker Thomas and, you know, the historical backdrop. And I have to say, that's not a very good idea for a paper. It's really small, right? Um, Nevertheless, it was an example of a broader phenomenon that is uh, worthy of engagement, which is, you know, when do courts note the racial identity of parties and litigants? and other uh, folks who they mention, and when do they not? And so I subsequently uh, wrote a paper called Recognizing Race that challenges, or pardon me, that really examines uh, this area. Um, And the court does it often, and it seems to me that they sometimes omit race when it would be pertinent to the discussion at hand, and conversely, sometimes insert race uh, when it is irrelevant and even uh, has the tendency to uh, entrench ugly uh, racial stereotypes. And so I wrote that paper for lots of audiences, but including uh, judges to make them more perhaps conscious of when they are 
uh, using race. And so this is just one example of a broader phenomenon, and there can be real value in stepping back and trying to see, uh, you know, things in a in a larger a larger form. So I do firmly believe that law professors are uh, made and not born. Well, so on that note, Justin, I, I just want to say, if I can speak on a personal note, I mean, it is a rare thing to have the impact that you've had in your career, both in the world and just on real human beings, and to write scholarship at the level that you're that you're writing it. And uh, I just got to say, I, as uh, dean, you were the first person who came to the law school when I was dean, and I could not be prouder of that fact, even though I had very little to do with it. But I, um, I just want to say how much of a joy it has been to, to be the dean at a law school where you are my colleague. Thanks so much, Heather. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. 